0: Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. This is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is a fellow by the name of Richard James. And Richard James has produced three mini documentaries, one titled Hard Money, one titled Petrodollar, and one titled The Anatomy of the State. And all three of these documentaries focus on the concept of personal sovereignty, what that is, and how it exists in relation to our governing bodies, the state, our governments. Namely, it focuses on how that relationship has changed in the previous 150 years. So my team actually found these documentaries and brought them to me and said, Jay, you really got to watch these. And I did. I enjoyed all three, and I thought I have to have Richard on the show. So here he is. Now, the first five, 10 minutes of this conversation, we talk about his background, why he made the films, all this stuff. But you know, then we get into probably the richest conversation that I've had to date on this channel about geopolitical power balance and the future of the megastate relationships in relation to big tech and digital currencies. Now, Richard is somebody who is forecasting a much wider spread adoption on a global scale of Bitcoin. Now, I would like to believe that's correct for a handful of reasons, but I just see so many challenges along the way. And the biggest issue I face as you know a host of a show like this is when I have you know, a Bitcoin advocate, or I should say evangelist on the program to talk about the future path of Bitcoin, I too frequently get these, these dogmatic answers that are just, they do not really based in reality, the, the sentiment that Bitcoin solves everything, Bitcoin will fix everything, and this is the panacea that will move us all towards this beautiful utopia where wealth inequality doesn't exist, and yada, 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 and I just don't believe anything works like that. Whereas Richard gave me, I think the most pragmatic and realistic answers that he could. And I found it very refreshing. So, you know, look, if you're thinking I've already heard a hundred conversations about the future of Bitcoin adoption, I get it. All I can tell you is that as the host of one of these shows, this was the most interesting conversation that I've had now. If I'm out to lunch, let me know that uh, I found this to be fascinating. So here it is, Richard James, mini documentary film producer. And I really enjoyed this one. I hope you do too. This is The Jay Martin Show. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House. And I'm joined right now by Richard James, independent film producer. Richard, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jay. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's it's funny how I came to learn about you because you know we do these interviews here on the YouTube channel, and we focus on like financial sovereignty and you know the sovereign mindset is kind of what I what I call it, right? Not necessarily opting out, but just understanding the significance and importance of learning how to take care of yourself to a point of being reliant on nobody but yourself. I think that's the best thing you can do for your community at large. Uh, we were looking at doing some sort of mini documentaries on a couple topics that keep on coming up in the interviews. And my team found your stuff and they thought, they, well, they told me you got to check out Richard James's films. And so I've now watched three of your films uh, and I've seen Hard Money, Petrodollars and Anatomy of the State. And yeah. they're very well done. And uh, I enjoyed them all. And I highly recommend all three. And I thought I got to get this guy in the show and just just chat. So here we are. Thanks very much. I'm glad to hear you've, uh,
1: you know, you've seen all all those, you know, it's something that, you know, I, I've been focusing more on in in the last couple of years, you know, I'm actually not necessarily, you know, I trained in filmmaking, uh, you know, many years ago, but sort of my, my career took a sort of different path. And I didn't work in that. You know, I've never really worked in in film in a professional capacity. I've got a, you know, I, I do have another a day job, which is r- running a business in the travel industry, which has been a bit slow lately. So it's been great to, um, you know, have more time at home and explore filmmaking a bit in a different uh, different way. The the thing that makes those projects stand apart from from anything else I've done, and hopefully makes them a bit unique, is that they were all just made from stuff. Material that I that I already found on on the internet, like um, you know, I piece them together from podcasts, interviews, clips I found on YouTube. It's kind of um, so they're all made with um, you know just me on my computer, without uh, you know without a budget, just just putting material together in that way. So it's been an interesting you know, way to go about making films, and, and it seems to be working
0: well. Yeah, well, they're highly educational and entertaining, and I feel like you have to tick both those boxes, right? You can be As educational as anything, but if people don't enjoy the content, they're not going to stick to it, they won't watch it in its entirety. They won't watch the next episode, and therefore they won't actually learn what you're trying to offer. But you do a great job of telling a story in a way that you want to watch, but it's also, uh, I think, very important information. For anyone who hasn't seen any hard money, petrodollars, or anatomy of the state, can you give us, Richard, like the highest level overview of what the theme is behind the films you create? The three films kind of work as a as a bit of a
1: trilogy in that they they all come back to the same the same general topics, um, which is about the the nature of the state, that is the government or um, the, the monopolist on violence in any particular territory, basically, and money. Those are the two themes that, that the films always come back to and and you know how what is money and how money is is used by, by the state. Uh, to achieve its goals, and so that's why anatomy of the state probably is is you know the the foundation which, which gives an it's based on the book by Murray Rothbard who's a an Austrian school economist uh, and a libertarian an anarchist basically um, you know he gives gives this outline of what is the state and and why he thinks it it's an institution that's actually Opposed to liberty, uh, the liberty and sovereignty of the individual, it takes a very sceptical view of go- You know the position of government in society, and so everything kind of flows from there. Um, and money, you know, hard money builds on that by really looking at at what, asking that question of what is money, and and specifically looking at the phenomenon of inflation and and how and inf- how governments use inflation as a hidden tax and as, as a means to gain revenue and and grow. Uh, and then petrodollars is kind of building on that again and going into a specific case, which is uh, the, the way the United States kind of entered into this deal with Saudi Arabia to price oil in, in dollars. And, and this sort of secret deal allowed the U.S. to prolong the, the hegemony of the U.S. dollar for another several decades. And, and some of the negative externalities of that arrangement. So that's sort of the, you know, summarizing the topics in the
0: broadest terms. Yeah, I appreciate that. Actually, I don't know when, when did you produce these, Richard? Actually, Hard Money was the first one I did. That was last year, uh,
1: around June, I think. And then Anatomy of the State sometime later. And then Petrodollars uh, was earlier this year, a couple of months ago. So you know each the good thing about the the style of film and they're not long films they're um, you know they're each one's about half an hour and I actually find that you know that that seems to be working really well as as the a narrative formula that it's a, it's a good amount of time that someone can it's enough time to go into depth on a topic but someone can can sit down and watch it in, in half an hour. It's not an intimidating amount of time, like you know your standard documentary, which might be an hour and a half or an hour forty five. But yeah. because the material's already there, you know, I don't have to travel or or I, it, it's it's sort of a quicker process of filmmaking. Like I can I can turn a film around much faster than uh, you know than if you followed the the traditional process.
0: Right. So. Were these quarantine projects, Richard? Yeah, exactly. Good That's how the first one started. I love that. You
1: know, we went into lockdown here uh, in Melbourne and, you know, couldn't really leave the house, couldn't, you know, couldn't go to work, uh, stuck at home so that it was kind of a it definitely started as a quarantine project.
0: I love that. I love that way to use the time to create. Man, it's the best. Uh, OK, now, now the message is, is real consistent and, and pretty thick with, uh, I guess, forcing the viewer to place questions on what is sovereignty and, and how is it threatened? You know, that's kind of my general takeaway. So I, I got to ask you, like, what inspired, because you said your side business or maybe your core business is a travel business. So, you know, what inspired you to create this this message and this content?
1: Well, I I sort of went on a journey a few years ago you know, I you know I'm in the travel industry. I've had to to shift gears a little bit. You know, I'm I'm interested in. You know, I've always loved to travel, uh, uh, but you know, I'm interested in in starting businesses and, and entrepreneurship. That's something I've been you know been working on uh, you know over the past decade or so. And I, but I started on this journey of first of all, it, it was a very simple idea of trying to to figure out how to invest my savings and and preserve wealth uh, for for me and my family, and so I was kind of learning about investing, and, and um, you know I, I read Warren Buffett's letters and and learned about value investing, and 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 that sort of that I had that journey. But then uh, in parallel, I was also, uh, you know, I'd always had an interest in economics. I studied economics at school and, and university, and, and was fascinated by it, but was always frustrated by the way it was taught. It never really made sense to me or, or or there was something missing i felt in in the way that it was taught and so um i you know i came both those roads kind of uh met with each other when i became interested in in the austrian school of economics and that was something that i you know i'd never come across in all, all my years of formal study and it really presented a, a different way of looking at economics but looking at the world in general that really resonated with me you know which was starting at first principles to take a, basically, uh, you know, really making you examine what are your assumptions. Whenever you're having an argument, you know, you have to go back to first principles and make sure that you understand the terms, you understand the definitions, you understand what you're assuming is given. And, and, you know, the Austrian school goes back and says, you know, we're going to start with the most basic premise that we can, which is something like humans act. You know, you know something that can't really be be refuted, and and we're going to build a, a logical system based on that, which was a different way of looking at things than the economics that I learned in in school, which which I, I think dived in at this place that didn't make sense to me. It, it, on the first page of the textbook was something like, "Here's the business cycle. You know, economies go in this cycle of boom and bust, and." the role of government is to intervene and smooth out the business cycle. And that was sort of literally the first page of the textbook. And so it was taken as given that there was a business cycle and it was taken as it, it, as, it didn't sort of explain why that, that existed. And it was also taken as given that it was the role of government to intervene and you know that, that this business cycle, but the market economy was inherently flawed somehow. And so the reason I found the Austrian School of Economics so fascinating was that it took us several steps back backward and actually try, was able to explain some of these phenomena from first principles. And actually, it made me realise that, you know, the, the government it was, in fact, the more likely to be the cause of some of these problems than actually the solution. So, you know, that that got me... Interested in you know the, there's a you know a scholar by the name of Murray Rothbard who we mentioned who who that film Anatomy of the State is based on, you know he he works in the field of economics but he also does work in the field of ethics, you know he he's a libertarian and and but he uses this same methodology this same way of thinking of of deductive reasoning from first principles to lay out a system of ethics that that I find fascinating and and so I think the world of, of economics, which is a, a a value-free science, and the world of ethics, which is, is not, which is is saying, you know, these are certain values, you know, things like freedom, individual sovereignty, why they're important. You know, those those two things come together in that Austrian school's way of thinking. So I suppose the other thing is, you know, both those roads have led me to a, a real interest in Bitcoin. And the films don't none none of them are specifically uh, discussions of Bitcoin, but but they're all I guess you know the, the the road leads to to Bitcoin as a as the best solution
0: to the problems that that I put forward in the films, basically. Interesting. Okay, I want to back up for a second. Why do you think? Okay, first of all, I shouldn't ask that. Let's get back to first principles on on your cue here. So I want to ask, why do you think? Do you think that? libertarianism and and the idea of personal sovereignty is often perceived as insensitive or selfish self-serving do you ever get that response to terms like that yes absolutely yeah it is the first
1: reaction you know when you hear something like uh, when you try and discuss libertarianism that it's you know that individualism is selfish uh, and i think there's this issue where you know it's our current way of of organizing society, which is basically social democracy. You know, the you know the, the method of government that we have in you know in Canada, or in Australia, or in, in the United States, you know, is is based on this idea that as a community, you know, we can come together and and solve, help help each other and solve problems uh, that that we wouldn't be able to solve ourselves and that you know when you first hear that it sounds it sounds really good but there are some I think in, inherent flaws in in that argument that if you go back to first principles and talk about the individual and, and agency and sovereignty and why you know that the needs of the individual have to come come first and foremost if we're going to discuss the flourishing of human civilization that's the the most logical way to proceed, but unfortunately, it's not necessarily the argument that appeals to emotion. Uh, and you know, I think that's why sort of ideas about communal um, living or or socialism persist so strongly. Uh, uh, you know, over the course of the last century or two, because you know, that there is a certain emotional appeal to that line of argument.
0: Yeah, it's it's a challenge for me, and I, I feel this drive. I I don't want to say challenge that idea but maybe define it a little bit because I agree with you you know as a community we come together and we can solve issues as long as individually we arrive at that community with resources to contribute right coming together is not enough it just isn't right and you know it brings me back to parenting like I know you're you're a father as am I we both have three young kids and I know I can be a great dad or a very, very poor dad. And that's dependent on a couple of things. Namely, how much energy I have left in the tank when I get home, right? And so if I've taken care of myself, if my health is good, if I slept well, if my nutrition is good, if I've managed all that stuff, when I show up at home, I've taken care of myself first, then I can be a great dad. Leave a positive impression on my kids. I can be patient, right? I've got the, the resources within me to be a great parent, right? And set a good example. And, and lead with patience and compassion. Whereas if I show up, my tanks on empty and I'm exhausted and I ate horrible food and I feel like crap, I'm gonna, that's going to be reflected in, the, in what I give to my community, right? My immediate community, my, my friends, my, my family. And that analogy is so clear to me. Does that resonate with you? Because when I, when I think about it like that, like as a father, I got to take care of myself to take care of anybody else. I got to take care of myself to be a better husband, right? If I'm in a bad place, everybody around me is impacted negatively, right? But I got to show up with something to give.
1: Yes, that that does resonate with me. And, you know, when I think of that analogy, I I can move it over into to this field of economics, which is that, you know, the, the free market or capitalism in general gets a kind of gets a bad rap. But I think that's, you know, you talked about the energy, that's almost like where the energy comes from in, in human civilization. It really does come down to our ability to build capital. You know, if you think about, this humanity in its natural state, you know, humans, the only way humans survive and, and flourish is to somehow transform the natural environment that they're put into, it, you know, into, in, in ways that, that allow them to, to grow their wealth. And, um, you know, everything else follows from that, you know, gut, it, you know, it's that process of, of capital accumulation, production and trade that builds all the wealth that we have in society and government is necessarily follows from that. You know, it, it, you know, government can't create wealth. It it simply can't. All it can do is, is take wealth from, um, you know, from those that have already created it and, and you, Potentially put that to some some other use, it's, and some would say, to to a greater perhaps to a greater good. But I think that the problem is that governments that that that's I think the you know the the main issue here, which is that you know, the the government can only take you know it can't it can't create anything from nothing. It it has to use the energy that's already been created by the free market, and unfortunately, we have this process where you know it seems inevitably. That it you know it it grows and grows um, to the point where it, it consumes all all of the energy and and has nothing left.
0: Mm. Now that seems to me like the trajectory that we're on. I mean, all my viewers are going to agree. You know, government's expanding, right? Therefore, the reliance of the population is growing. The reliance on government is growing, right? Especially through the last eighteen months, and in some cases, you know, there's been some. I think that that out of necessity, right? But uh, but not always. And so do you see that trend occurring right now, Richard? Does it concern you? Where do you think it goes eventually? You know, what does that look like?
1: Yes, I agree that, that I think that's the trend we're going in. And I think that, you know, in some ways there's an inevitability to that. You know, if you, you know, it's a trend that I think has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And if you look back, and, and I think it's it's something that's inherent to the nature of the state, to whoever has has the monopoly on violence. You know, if you go back to the founding of the United States, which you know w- which was founded on these principles of of freedom and a, a real desire to to limit the exercise of government power through the Constitution. You know, I think you can sort of almost look at the history of say the United States as as the slow slow growth. Of government, from where it started as this experiment in extreme limited government, to where we are now, where the you know the government consumes such a huge section of of society and economy, and, and that's happening you know here where I live. It's it's happening all over the world, and and I think will continue to happen in the short term. It's something that informs my my thinking on this is a, a book called The Sovereign Individual. Which, which sort of lays out this uh, you know this thesis about sort of about how the world works you know it, it was written back in the late 1990s, and and it talks about how human organization and the way we organize our societies is basically a response to what they call the return on violence you know it, it, which is kind of sounds sounds like an esoteric kind of thing but basically they're saying that if you go back to when humans were say hunter gatherers you know that the, there wasn't much to be gained by being violent basically because humans hadn't stored up any wealth to, to to steal but but once we had the agricultural revolution say and and we started to accumulate capital and and you know we settled uh, into villages and towns you know humans started to build wealth and so as a as a Human, you've got two choices. One is to peacefully engage in in production and exchange, or there's a, there's another. We all have free will, and there's another option available to us, which is to simply take what someone else has uh, has already created. And but that there's always a trade-off. Like there's risks involved in in that process. And but we've seen this this general um, trend over the course of human civilization tied to basically the, the advancement and proliferation of, of weapons technology, that the the return, um, the gain to, to projecting violence ha- has been increasing, and, and to the point where, fast forward to the 20th century, and you get the, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, and, and we're now seeing you know, the existence of states, governments on a scale- vastly larger than we'd ever seen before in human history you know obviously it it ebbs and flows but um, you know if you look at you know the middle of the the 20th century where you had the United States you had the Soviet Union you've got the world split up into a very small number of large states and the argument in the sovereign individual is that that that's basically a, a reaction to to this logic of violence and and that the states states are going to sort of continue to grow but what's what's interesting is that there's this opposing force that's that's sort of popped up in in recent years which is basically information technology and um, you know the, they talk about the advance of of computers uh, information technology as this this revolution in the logic of violence where all of a sudden assets like human wealth you know, for for all of human history, wealth has been stored in physical form. Uh, you know, whether that's gold or whether it's a biz, you know, a, a farm plot, or whether it's, you know, in in the twentieth century, we saw that the scale of these physical assets grow to a point where you know it might be a you know a huge factory with production lines. You know, and that presented itself as a as a target for state capture. But all of a sudden you know with the onset of computers and software wealth is or is is no longer necessarily in in physical form all of a sudden it it's digital and and that means it's much easier to defend that wealth and and move that wealth and and governments the growth of governments has always been predicated on control of of physical realm of physical wealth but all of a sudden if wealth becomes digital uh, and it can move, you know, and the, and the first revolution we've seen is in software. And what's interesting is the, the next potential revolution is in in the digitization of wealth in in money, uh, which which was predicted by in this book in the late '90s before before Bitcoin and before you know the advent of crypto uh, cryptographic money. Um, that's this other force that you know that makes wealth so much more mobile so much easier to defend and so their thesis is that you know if you look forward for the next just several generations while states are growing now you're potentially going to see a a revolution where you know that that states won't be able to capture that wealth as effectively and so we may in fact be moving towards a future where state power is is declining and and, and the way governments are forced to organize it on a smaller scale and and you may see more of a relationship between citizens and governments like a consumer and a business like the governments are are forced to to sort of serve Their citizens more like like a business and compete for for citizens because wealth is now so mobile, and I think that's that's a good thing. No, I I think that's a you know if that plays out, I think it will be a force for good in the world for for freedom and and sovereignty. But unfortunately, possibly in the short term, you're going to see you know states use every everything within their means you know to to try and you know extract as mu- as much wealth as as they can whilst this kind of battle is going on
0: well this is still the game okay and so so i want to i want to pull on some threads there and get into really what you're explaining could create that transition which as i understood as you explained it is you know true mainstream and widespread adoption of a competitive world reserve currency that could be bitcoin or something similar and you know we've moved from a place at least in the united states you know you mentioned the american experiment and the constitution which was written in such a way that really it was built to limit the power of the president that's why actually the president's far less powerful than a prime minister of canada for example you know relative and that's by design. That was the beauty of the American experiment. Let's limit the power of any one individual, right? Limit the power of government. We're tra- we transition to a place where government's not following the people. People are now following the government and tr- to transition back to a place where people hold the power I struggle with that a little bit. Here's why, you know, we are, we're, we're driven by narratives and we're driven by stories, right? And the stories are told to us by media platforms. And, you know, just in the last, you know, eight years since the 2016 election, a lot of us realized how powerful social media platforms and media narratives can really drive population sentiment towards major decisions, right? I.e. Uh, national election. So there's a third party here, right? There's, there's the people, there's the government, and then there's maybe called the digital states, right? And the rise of the digital states, I would call, you know, it's Twitter, it's Facebook, Instagram, it's. You know, these, these tech empires that control the information that all of us consume that are sitting on treasuries competitive with any sovereign nation and their power, I think, is still not quite understood. I don't know if there's a question on the back of that, Richard, but how does that, how does that player fit into this narrative? And I want you to elaborate a little bit on how, how you could see the transition occurring where enough people adopt a competitive world currency to actually shift the tide of power. What do you think?
1: Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting, you know, way to look at things. And and I I agree and understand that there are concern well concerns, let's say, about the you know just the to growth be clear, of some. I hope I'm take. wrong on that, but I, <laughs> it's just what I see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess I guess my take on it is that perhaps we can. Ha- there is a conversation to be had about the, the growth of big tech, and, and you know whether it's it's a good or a bad thing. And you're certainly seeing governments attempt to limit the power of, of these tech companies in, in some ways and, and regulate them. But I still see this fundamental difference between these entities, which is that, you know, if a, even though a platform like Google or Twitter, you know, is increasingly becoming, becoming powerful, I, I, as an individual, can still. I still have the option to walk away from, and not use those platforms if, if I don't want to. You know, I, you know, I'm not in any way forced to to use them. I might choose to do so, and I, I may not fully understand the trade offs involved in in using them in in terms of data collection or, or or the way they manipulate, you know, you know, the way our brains work and addiction and things like that. But you know, at the fundamental level, it's an optional interaction. Whereas the problem I have with with government is that it's not, it's not optional. You know, I, I don't have the option to, to walk away, you know, from, from this social contract that exists with the government, if I'm not happy with it. So, you know, that, you know, I think that needs to be taken into account when, when people try and, you know, invoke government as as the savior to, to, to the way the world is going with big tech. The other interesting phenomenon that is possibly playing out is is the fact that for several hundred years you know possibly since um you know since the introduction of of central banking uh you know going back to to the 1600s or 1700s you've seen this real kind of partnership between the state and banking you know that you know that's been a really you know a really important partnership and you know i that's sort of where the way I view central banking is kind of, you know, a way for it's a way for governments to to sort of monetize debt, and, you know, and increase increase their rate of growth. Um, and it's also good for the banking system, uh, you know, as a backstop that allows them to, to continually expand the the money supply. But what you may be seeing is a shift in that partnership between government and and banking towards more government and and big tech, like, like, you know, especially with all this talk of central bank digital currencies, you know, I find that a really interesting phenomenon that, that you, that there may be sort of a new alliance uh, forming between governments and these, these organizations that is, that is certainly a cause for concern, you know, you, you often find that that once certain industries become really large, they sort of become married to the state uh, and and have a you know use regulatory capture to sort of entrench their monopoly um, and shield themselves from the force of the market. So that that is a cause for concern. It's not something I, you know, I, I'm an expert in, but but it's it's an interesting thing to ponder. Yeah.
0: What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. I, I love the idea of opting out. Of big tech, I really struggle to see how I could do that. And let me explain: it's not. Well, there's a host of reasons, but you know, I think as a business owner, take me back to the 1980s. Can I operate my business without a physical address and a phone line? Like, probably not, right? It would be very challenging, right? And and today we exist online, and so how can you operate your business? How can you generate wealth and improve your status in life? Without opting in to the the world we live in, which is very much digital, and and there aren't competitors when it comes to uh, what Twitter offers, what Facebook, Instagram offer, not really, you know. And and can you, you know, it's it's hard to. You, you talked about government regulating big tech, and I think it's got to go that direction. I don't know that's a great thing, but I just think. These companies are likely eventually to be regulated like utilities, because very much that's what they've become, right? Small medium business is reliant upon that digital presence. And how do you have that? Well, you have to use one of the uh, monopoly platforms that exists, right? And opting out of that, sure, you could try, but it's hard, right? It's very hard to adopt a customer base, grow your presence, gain traction with a product or service, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, i I love the romantic idea but I just, I struggle to, to, to actually visualize how I could adopt that. Do You think I'm missing something, Richard, or what do you think about that?
1: No, I don't think you're, you're missing anything at all. I think it's, it's a legitimate concern. I suppose the only thing I can say is that my own personal concern about the way the world is moving, you know, is, is not with necessarily with big tech it's, it's with government really you know you know i think it's an interesting conversation about big tech and, and opting out and it's something that i've been interested in in looking at per- personally just just because it's something I, i'm interested in in terms of can i do without google you know are there, are there ways to to use open source software uh competitors where i don't have to give up my data or to be honest i'd rather just you know have a have an open contract where I pay to use services that mm. I find valuable, like mail, email or or maps wh- where I know that I'm just paying for the service and and you know, I'm not giving up data or privacy in ways that I that I'd understand. You know, I you know, I certainly think that's a concern and, and a big conversation to be had in society. I suppose that it's just that my, you know, my default response is always that I believe that government will do more harm than good. Like I just, that's just a blanket statement that I, that I apply to everything almost is that more that I I believe the answer is always less regulation than more regulation. When it comes to something like a natural monopoly, whether that's in, in, in cyberspace or in physical assets, you know, like, you know, utilities or whatever. I just believe that you know if if the free market was left to its own devices c- competition would would work and and i find that when, when you see a monopoly you know i i i just believe that there's more chance that it's because there's been some inherent privilege granted by the state that, that
0: than some than some inherent property of that actual market okay okay i appreciate that now talk to me about about the path forward for cryptocurrency what what needs to occur what do you expect to occur if this currency asset continues to gain traction i think the first point for me is is
1: to make a differentiation between bitcoin and and cryptocurrency you know my focus is is specifically on on bitcoin um because i think it it has certain properties that that really differentiate it from from everything else and and perhaps the way i would frame that and and explain that in more detail is to to think about bitcoin more as as energy money rather than crypto money now i think that bitcoin's real breakthrough was this way of taking an energy input and creating from storing that energy in a form that you know a digital form that that's kind of like this fungible token um and i think the bitcoin has achieved that whereas i don't think any of the other um cryptocurrencies r- really have that that property you know you know i think you know if you think think about um the the properties of money and and, and what makes a good money versus a bad money you know and why humans use money you know i think that this idea of 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 stored energy and and almost a sacrifice a real world sacrifice to create the money is such an important property in money you know and i think that's the main reason why gold uh has succeeded as, as money over the course of human history uh was because it, it it's difficult to to create and and bitcoin's able to mirror that you know and some of these other other cryptocurrencies um you know i, I think the cryptography in terms of the blockchain and and, and you know and, and public key cryptography was basically their tools that the Bitcoin has has leveraged in order to create this process of of turning energy into money. Rather than, you know, I'm not someone who believes that blockchain itself is, is some kind of an inherent kind of technological breakthrough that, that really has much other application. You know, I, I really think it's just it's just one part of the toolkit that Bitcoin's used um, to to create this this new form of money. And so, you know, I think that the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that, you know, I, I certainly believe that it's a, a force good in the world in terms of freedom and, and sovereignty, because, you know, the, the fundamental problem that I have with with our current system, you know, if you really just boil it down in simplest terms, is that you know, someone else, you know, some privileged group has the ability to to create money, and and the rest of us don't, you know. I think that's the the problem with with our current financial system, and the problem with central banking that that just isn't discussed enough. You know, anyone who's interested in in investing or or financial the markets, you know, is constantly discussing central bank policy, and, and and you know, but there's never this discussion about the fact that. Central banking is actually needed in the first place. That's just just taken as as a given. So so I I have this problem where first of all I think that it's it's not an efficient way to manage an economy. You know I think that it's a form of central planning in the most important price of the economy, which is the price of money. Uh, so so I don't think from an economic point of view it's efficient, and um, also from an, an ethical point of view I have this problem with. You know, with one group being being allowed to create money at the expense of others. So, you know, the the reason I think Bitcoin changes that is, you know, it, it sort of democratizes this process of money creation, which is that you know, if if you want to create money, you have to expend a certain amount of real world energy. You have to sacrifice something in, in the real world, and, and so it mirrors gold. In, in that respect but the, the problem with gold was that you know the, gold was really good at in that aspect as a money but you know it gold ha- has some shortfalls obviously in terms of the way it's used in in modern commerce you know it's 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 a rock so like you know we we had to create these these instruments and derivatives on top of it you know pay we created paper money you know ba- and a banking system in order to to be able to more efficiently transport value across space quickly. Um, and, and so the problem so gold kind of from a technological point of view had a weak spot there. It, it failed and but but the problem was once we built these banking systems on top of gold, you know uh, you know that, that was sort of co-opted by the state you know, uh, uh, the, the asset itself was centralized and sort of captured. Um, whereas Bitcoin, I think, solves a lot of the problems that you know the, the gold left unsolved, which is that it it's excellent at, at preserving value across time because it's you know its its issuance its supply is limited, um, but it it also solves this problem of transporting value across space. You know, already on the on the base blockchain, you know, you can transport a bearer asset to the other side of the world for very a very low cost uh, in in ten minutes, uh, you know, and that's that's makes it really valuable as as a potential reserve asset. but you're also now seeing the you these higher layers being built, second layers, for example, the lightning network, which are which are even more suitable for more everyday commerce um, because it, it literally is instant and 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 next to next to free. So, I think that you know it, it's interesting. Look, the argument can be made: oh, is it realistic that Bitcoin could become the the global reserve currency of the future? You know, I think I personally think it, it probably will. Uh, it can be argued both ways, but and there are certain. If you want to put your money into Bitcoin, there are, there are obviously risks that you need to to think about, but. But, you know, we started this conversation with this idea of sovereignty and this idea of of potentially opting out. And and Bitcoin already is a a way to opt out. Um, You know, it's a way to take your savings and, um, you know, and store them in this form that that is sovereign, that, that can't be confiscated. You know, it can't be debased. And obviously, there are still these real world issues, like if you want to interact in our economy as it is today with bitcoin you're going to have to deal with things like capital gains tax and stuff like that like yes that that currently exists as a problem but certainly i can speak from personal experience that it's incredibly empowering to to instead of have your money as a number in a in a bank that you don't control you know you physically when you physically take possession of that asset you know you can you can control it you can store it you know you can send it you know you have you ver you can verify the transaction yourself by running the software. That's an an incredibly in- I personally found it to be an empowering experience and and it sort of inspired me to to explore other aspects of life, you know where you know where I can gain that same feeling of freedom and sovereignty.
0: you know I, I love that concept, and you know i I think that I hope you're right you know, about a uh, a decentralized world reserve currency. Because on the surface, I like the idea a lot. I have a couple of questions. So I want to challenge you when you said you think this will likely occur, right? And I'm challenging from a place of curiosity, right? So a couple of questions that I have. First of all, Richard, you know, we've seen what, what China has done in terms of like essentially uh, prohibiting transactions of, of Bitcoin, right? What if the world's largest economies followed suit? And this is like the oldest question in the book when it comes to resistance against Bitcoin adoption. So, so forgive me for this. But I just think that I have, I have a very hard time seeing a world power like the United States walk away quietly. So we know that's not going to happen, right? As you sure. said, monopoly on violence, they'll do whatever they have to do to retain world reserve currency status. So what else is in the tool belt for a country like the United States, for, for Europe to protect their currencies and in the situation where i guess they start losing ground uh to bitcoin what are the tactics and and uh, scenarios that could unfold
1: look i think you you make very good points and i think you know this conversation this is an important conversation that that needs to be had you know and and i don't think it's it's a conversation that has a final end point like it's it's just a conversation that's, that's obviously ongoing and first of all i i it's certainly interesting to see that the, the largest economy in the world which is china has banned bitcoin more recently they you know they banned bitcoin mining uh, whereas and china used to be you know the the country that had the the largest proportion of the bitcoin hash rate and you know it's interesting to see that Bitcoin was kind of unaffected by that like it didn't really affect the price of, of Bitcoin much um, no. and and certainly hash rate has come back I, I think that potentially the United States could have an impact certainly in the short to medium term on the dollar price of Bitcoin if they came out with a with a an antagonistic stance against Bitcoin and and I agree with you that they wouldn't vol- would never voluntarily, you know, move to a Bitcoin standard. I think that, you know, if this is going to play out, you know, it, it will be something that kind of happens at the margins, you know, with smaller countries. Like you've seen what ha- what's happened in El Salvador, uh, where that they, where they've adopted Bitcoin as, as their currency. Accepted tender, yeah. Okay, yeah, as their legal tender. Okay, El Salvador's a, a, a tiny, insignificant country from a geopolitical point of view. But I think that, the fact remains that, it, that that's kind of the the way you'd expect this to play out it's countries that have the least to gain from the way the current monetary system is designed that that are more likely to to embrace the, you know this kind of technology and so i think that more and more you will see smaller countries kind of start to offer uh, you know, be more accepting of of something like Bitcoin and 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 be open to the sort of capital inflow, the inflow of of talent, uh, you know that, that and 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 wealth that that might bring, and even within the United States, you're seeing this kind of uh, balkanization where so, some states are you know being receptive to to this, where and others aren't, and so you, you're seeing you know. That happened with Bitcoin. You're seeing that happen along all sorts of other kind of political uh, and and economic lines. So, so I find that that an interesting phenomenon. But uh, yeah, I I think that um, I agree with you that that governments can inflict damage upon this network, certainly in the short term if they wish to, but. First of all, it doesn't see, you know, the United States doesn't seem like it's really going in that direction. Like it's, it's all almost, you know, you wouldn't say the U S government is positive in in the way it discusses Bitcoin, but, but there's certainly no discussion of a, of a ban on, on Bitcoin. And, and yeah, I, I believe that in the long term, like going forward, you know, let's look forward 50 years that that force, um, you know, that, that digital decentralized um, force, from an economic point of view, w- will eventually overpower, um, you know, the, the force of the state in the direction that it's going. But but I'm certainly I, you know, that's just my reading of it. Like I, like I think the debate is, you know, and I've placed my bet in in that kind of area because. I, you know, I think from a financial point of view, I think it's, it's, it's the right decision for me, but also, um, you know, from an ethical point of view, I like the fact that I'm supporting, you know, this, this new system that, that I think is a better framework for, for building human civilization in a fairer manner. Like I, I like the fact that I can, you know, that I can say I'm, you know, I'm helping to, to build that new system.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, if if you had done nothing over the last 20 years but invest in companies that leverage the network effect, you'd done very well, right? These these are the Facebooks, the 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 Twitters uh, that have taken over the world, right? And and Bitcoin is maybe your opportunity to invest in money with network effect. It's exciting to to hear you talk about it because I I agree. El Salvador is, you know, inconsequential in terms of geopolitical power balance, but it's early days, right? And, you know, geopolitical power has typically been determined by access to resources and the ability to transport those resources, right? And that has yet to really been proven out in the digital age and how this game will be played 20, 30 years down the road. I guess it's just a giant question mark. But okay, so my second challenge or question on this is in terms of uh, Often, Bitcoin advocates point to Bitcoin as a solution to um, wealth inequality, right? And this, is a, a, this will level the playing field. My question for you, Richard, is Bitcoin today is at, you know, 57,000 USD, right? I know a handful of people that have been investing in Bitcoin uh, since single digits, and many that have invested in Bitcoin since double and triple digits. If I were to survey my neighborhood right now, right? The 60 closest homes to me, I bet you 5 to 10% have a Bitcoin position at best. What this makes me wonder is at a point where we're actually experiencing widespread adoption, my neighbors aren't buying at $57,000. At this point, they're buying at $250,000 per Bitcoin, right? So how does that eliminate, and this is coming from a place of like, innocent curiosity, because I, I just, I don't have a clear answer on this, how does that eliminate wealth inequality when there's going to be quadrillionaires in terms of Bitcoin wealth and, and my neighbor who's buying Bitcoin and, and trying to stack sats, but at, at incomparable value? Does that make sense? If you buy something for Absolutely. $13 and this person here is buying it for $500,000, you know I, I don't see how that eliminates wealth inequality. I think it just accelerates it if you think about it like that. So what am I missing in this in this? And I hope I articulated that. Okay absolutely you, you did
1: to... and i think it's a it's a legitimate concern and i think that it's you know it's a, once again it's one of these these debates that i think is really really good to have and i suppose the the way i would approach this is saying that you know if you had to imagine how you know say we did all come to the decision that okay let's the the current monetary system's not working uh, or it's coming to the end of its lifespan we need a new system how how are we going to to build or create that system you know what what's the fairest way to do that and the problem with you know you know perhaps you could come up with some new asset you know devise it and then we're going to say airdrop this asset the same amount to to every single person on the planet so we've done an equal distribution the problem is that someone's kind of has to be in control of that of that system um you know that's going to inherently be a a centralized top-down system and and the problem is that that while it may start off equal i think is going to someone's going to be in charge and and history shows that you know that we've never really come up with a, a mechanism for kind of stopping those that have the power to create money for, from creating it. And so so the problem I have with our current system of money is that the inequality is built into it systemically. Like it, it, over time, you know, certain people have privileges, inherent privileges, they can create the money. And so I think it, it gets more unequal over time um, to the point where it sort of implodes on itself. Whereas with Bitcoin, certainly I understand the concern that you know there are people who have been invest- owning Bitcoin since the very early days that that are incredibly you know wealthy now, uh, and and Bitcoin continues to go up in price, will continue to be wealthy. But I suppose you know the same could be said of you know of, of people who own our current uh currencies and assets and um you know in, in a certain way bitcoin has, has rewarded those who you know have had the foresight or, or or the courage to you know to take a position in it early but i think that you know it's the fairest method that i believe there was to to release this thing into into the world you know when when satoshi nakamoto created this thing you know he you know, he he released the system and, and it was open to anyone to, um, you know, to run it on the computer, to mine for Bitcoin and, and to receive that money that, you know, that was an open system to, to anyone. Obviously, there were only a few people who knew about it, but but I'm not sure of any other way that that it could have been done. And I suppose that, the, the uh, yeah, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, I, I genuinely believe that that. Whilst our current system has the tendency for inequality to increase over time, I think Bitcoin is the opposite. It has the tendency to, to decrease and to become more, more equal over time because you know those people that are whole, holding Bitcoin in large quantities now, you know we're seeing the monetization of this asset in real time. We're seeing an exponential uptake in the amount of people using this and a corresponding increase in price and purchasing power. That, that's not going to go on forever, you know. Right now, I'd rather hold Bitcoin than, you know, a, you know, an ETF of the stock market because I think it has has more potential over the long term, you know, to to appreciate in value. But um, there'll come a time in the future where that that'll no longer be the case. Maybe we've you know we've transitioned to to a different system, and and the time will come again to start um deploying that capital into you know into businesses into investments and at that point you you do have a level playing field where there's there's no seniorage there's no cantillion effect where those that are closest to the money printer um get this privileged access it's you know that that's the the beauty of a of a hard money that that takes sacrifice to create it's that um you know, the only way you can you can generate wealth is 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 to build capital. You know, and, and to serve other other people. Um, you know, it's just that we're kind of going through this this anomaly phase at the moment where where you're sort of seeing the monetization of an asset play out in real time, which is something we kind of haven't really seen before since gold, you know, was monetized many you know hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago. You know, all, all the other, you know, I'm not trying to come up here and get on my high horse and say, oh, Bitcoin's this revolution that um you know that's changes humanity. But I'm like I'm all the like I think that argument does make sense. Like all the other innovations we've seen in in money, like in terms of banking or credit cards or checking accounts, like they they haven't been the monetization of new assets. They've been sort of payment technology you know uh, whereas this i think l- legitimately is the the monetization of a of a bearer asset um so you're getting these interesting um effects uh, you know the fact that you know, the first of all is that it's not really an investment you no know, owning bitcoin because mm. you know it's not a productive activity like it, it doesn't generate a yield um i guess you know it's the same as gold in that respect you know it's you know, I see it really as a as a form of saving, mm. um, you know, but, but there may come a time in, in the future where you know, there will, I, I think there will come time where, where that Bitcoin will then be invested in, in productive activities. So, yeah, I guess, sorry, that was a long winded response, but I think it's a, it's a complicated topic, but yeah, I guess to sum it up again, it's that I think that oh, it's okay. Some people bought Bitcoin when it was very cheap, but you can, the reality is you can go and buy it. I, I think, because of its limited supply, it will have a tendency to to preserve and increase purchasing power indefinitely. And so you can go today, convert your your dollars are losing purchasing power. So regardless of the price of Bitcoin, the dollar price of Bitcoin, you can convert your dollars to Bitcoin today and and preserve and increase that that purchasing power. and 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 anyone in the world can do that. You know it's not like, some privileged market where insiders get as, access. And, and in fact, you're seeing countries in, in developing countries, you know, especially in Africa and, and in parts of Asia, in the Middle East, where, you know, in terms of Bitcoin adoption per capita, they're actually some of the highest in the world. And you're seeing lots of trading volume, especially, peer, you know, directly peer to peer. So you, you're seeing people in these um, these countries using Bitcoin a, a, as a way to, To preserve their wealth you know and as as a way to empower themselves uh, you know and and increase their freedom and sovereignty
0: Hmm. you know what you know it was a long-winded answer but it was a really good one richard and and it made me rethink my question to be honest because i think my question came from a place of responding to the the dogmatic ideologists all over twitter with a laser eyes who will tell you bitcoin solves everything right it's some panacea that's going to bring us to this beautiful utopia. And obviously that's not the case. So, in response to that, I asked questions like this. And your response back was, look, yeah, but maybe it's the fairest way. And even in a free market, like a true free market economy, there's winners and losers. Right. So this does not, is not the 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 security blanket for everybody on the planet. But maybe it's a better way, right? Maybe it's a better exactly. Way. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate and that. I-
1: now, this is now moving into a different a different thing entirely but yes I think you can't you know if there was a way to you know to to do it more equitably perhaps that would be that would be good but but i think that that unfortunately from a practical point of view i'm not not sure that there is mm. and yeah, yeah. The, the reality of the situation is that the, the the game you know the game theory is kind of already underway like like i i think it's a it happens to be a, a nice coincidence that that bitcoin is a it, that i believe it's a it's a potentially a force for good in the world but but in some ways that's also irrelevant because it, it kind of enforces this economic reality where where you know there's game theories playing out and so you know regardless of what your opinion is is of it uh you know it's potentially worth
0: you know entering the game anyway i love that man i think that's a great place to wrap this up richard it's been great having you on the show. I'm, I'm really glad we got in touch. Uh, super fun conversation, super enlightening. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. It was great chatting with you, and I'd love to do it again sometime.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Jay. You know, I really appreciate this conversation. And I think, you know, we explored some some really interesting and, and important aspects of this. So thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast.